0: Welcome to Act In Line, the podcast of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Caroline Roberts, producer and host. If you've been to our nation's capital before, it's likely that you've traveled through Washington Dulles International Airport, named after President Eisenhower's Secretary of State, John Foster Dulles. In fact, over 60,000 people travel through Dulles Airport every day, but not many people know much about its namesake. John Foster Dulles served in the early years of the Cold War and pursued a vigorous foreign policy meant to isolate and undermine communism. Undergirding his foreign policy was a commitment to natural law, a realistic understanding of human nature, and a clear vision of freedom. Since his passing in 1959, Dulles has been characterized only as a dour, puritanical, and simple man, and much of that is true about him. Joining the podcast today to shed more light on the life of Dulles is John D. Wilsey, Associate Professor of Church History at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. On this episode... John brings perspective to Dulles' legacy, uncovering both his public and private life and showing how simple explanations of Dulles don't help us accurately understand the man or his times. As always, show notes with all the reading materials referenced in this episode can be found at Acton's blog at acton.org. That's acton, A-C-T-O-N dot O-R-G.
1: Welcome. My name is Dan Huger, Librarian and Research Associate at the Acton Institute. Today I'm joined by John D. Wilsey, Associate Professor of Church History at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. John is the author of several books, including One Nation Under God, An Evangelical Critique of Christian America, American Exceptionalism and Civil Religion, Reassessing the History of an Idea and a forthcoming biography of the late Secretary of State John Foster Dulles in Erdman's Library of Religious Biography series. He recently gave a lecture at the Acton Institute on Secretary Dulles titled Faith, Freedom, and the Cold War Architect. John, welcome to Acton Line. Yeah, thanks a lot for having me. This this is a fascinating figure and somebody that I didn't know a lot about before your talk. I knew, you know, sort of the, the high school history right. sort of level. Um, and I, I don't think that's uncommon for Americans. No. Uh, right. Secretaries of state loom very large in the public imagination um, while they're serving in their various administrations. But then with a couple rare exceptions, they tend to, to fade from memory more quickly than, than their influence on that's policy true. does. That's um, exactly Right. What motivated you to dig into the life and legacy of Secretary Dulles, you know, so long after his service?
2: Yeah, well, in the um, <clears throat> in the American Exceptionalism book, mm-hmm. um, one of the chapters I wrote was a, a really focused on him. Um, and so the research that I did for the book on that chapter— uh, you know, made me really interested in his life and, and come up with the idea of having a uh, – writing a religious biography. In fact, it wasn't really my idea. I, I had a, a good friend of mine who was, who was reading my manuscripts, uh, my, my, you know, my drafts, um, Philip Luke Sinatier, a great historian, American historian. And he was reading uh, through my drafts and um, when he finished that, that chapter, he said, you know, you really ought to consider writing a religious biography of John Foster Dulles. And I thought, that's a, that's a pretty darn good idea. I think I will. And so I proposed it to, uh, to Erdman's, to Heath Carter, and, you know, here we are. Yeah. It is a great series. It's a great series.
1: And there are, there are, uh, a lot of the volumes that have already come out are excellent. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of excellent forthcoming volumes. Yeah. And I would recommend everybody check them out. I guess be- before we get into the questions of, of the religion— of, of Secretary Dulles, I guess uh, might, maybe the best place to start would be family history because he doesn't exactly come out of
2: nowhere. Um, right. This is a
1: very prominent family. That's um, right.
2: That's right. It's fascinating, really. Just uh, In fact, that's the first thing that made me interested in him was his family history is so compelling. Uh, on his mother's side, uh, his uncle was Robert Lansing. He served as Secretary of State under Woodrow Wilson. His grandfather, John W. Foster, served as Secretary of State under Benjamin Harrison. Uh, and so on his mother's side, you have this very strong sort of a diplomatic tradition. And not only was John Foster uh, Secretary of State, he's also uh, minister to Mexico. He was minister to Russia. He was minister to Spain. So Foster's mother lived in all these very exotic places from when she was, you know, a um, you know, in her early years and in her teenage years. Um, she wrote a memoir about her life in all these great places. And her memoir is really fascinating to see from, you know, her perspective as a teenage girl living in, you know, the court of, uh, you know, of, of Alexander the Third in Russia, who was, of course, assassinated. Yeah. Um, Anyway, all, all that to say that his, his uh, mother's family has this diplomatic tradition, which is very, very interesting. And then his father's family were, were theologians and ministers and missionaries, right? So his dad was a pastor, and his dad was also a theologian. Um, he pastored uh, the First Presbyterian Church of Watertown, New York, when Foster was a boy. And then in 1904, the year that P- Foster went to Princeton— um, his father left the church and went to teach theology at uh, Auburn Theological Seminary in Auburn, New York. He taught; his title was professor of theism and apologetics, and he taught there until he died. He died in nineteen thirty-one. So um, he taught classes literally up to his death. Um, and so he, so here with, with with John Foster Dulles, we have the merger of two distinct. Very strong family traditions: one in diplomacy and statecraft, and one in, you know, in Presbyterian, you know, church, uh, you know, theology and preaching and church ministry. I'll say on the Presbyterian end, the religious end, it is a particular brand of Presbyterianism. It's it's early twentieth century, you know, Protestant liberalism. Yeah. Um. So, so Reverend Dallas John Foster's father. Was was a, a what we would say is a liberal. What he would say was a liberal, yeah. and and Foster was also uh, followed in those footsteps.
1: Now, now, early twentieth century Protestant liberalism is a lot different than. Mm-hmm. What, we, what would we conceive of yeah, today?
2: Very much. Um, yeah. Yeah. You know,
1: Harry Emerson Fostic is a mm. leading figure in the Presbyterian Church at yes. this time. Yes. There's all sorts of controversies in the Presbyterian Church. What does that liberal Protestantism of the 20th century,
2: the early 20th century look like? What, what, what yeah. characterizes yeah. that? An emphasis on ethics. Mm-hmm. Christianity is ethics and less of an emphasis on theological dogma. And this is certainly going to be brought out in the Presbyterian controversies, um, the fundamentalist modernist controversy that takes place in the Presbyterian Church in the 1920s. Yep, and, and the it, Auburn Affirmation. The Auburn yes. Affirmation, mm-hmm. exactly, which his father uh, is a signatory to. Okay. Um, and uh, and and interestingly enough, Foster w- served as Harry Emerson Fosdick's counsel at his heresy trial in oh, uh, in. Boy. Yeah, and then in 1924. Mm-hmm. Um, so from 1924 to 1926, Foster is—he's not, you know, he's not a—you know—he's not out there, you know, uh, in the middle of the press, and he's not a public, you know, figure in the controversy. You know, he's, you know, he's—he's he's not out there doing this uh, sort of public advocacy for one side or the other. Mm-hmm. But he's—he's he's the legal counsel, for Fosdick. And then for a number of others who um, were—their uh, ordination was being questioned. Okay. So from 24, 25, and 26, he was serving in a, in a legal capacity to the, to, the very, to the New York Synod mm-hmm. uh, you know, before the General Assembly and so forth. In the background, that really establishes the Presbyterian Church USA on a, a liberal trajectory starting in the 20s. He's, he's in the center of that—of those controversies, but not from a theological Mm-hmm. but from a um you know legal standpoint. So anyway to answer your question though, the ethical stress is 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 really you know underscored for liberalism in the 20s, especially for presbyterians and certainly for foster. Mm-hmm. What matters for him most of all is is pragmatics. Yeah. Um uh, and morality. Um, for some historical background for mm-hmm. the listeners, I want to make
1: sure we include in the show notes. Uh, there's a very famous speech that Harry Emerson Foster sure. gives yeah. called uh, "Shall the Fundamentalists Win?" Right, and he sort of gives his perspective, categorizing <clears throat> fundamentalism as something that he believes sticks to these doctrinal points. Mm-hmm. At the expense of Christian unity, right? And his great antagonist in this struggle is Jay Gresham Machen, who writes a book called Christianity and Liberalism, yeah. um, which yeah. kind of presents the opposite side of that argument. But both both are have have a strong sense of ethical obligations and yes. norms yes. and that sort of thing, um, and that's. Something that that is that is part of that of that civil religion you've written about elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, what 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 is the distinctly sort of Presbyterian flavor and in influence? I mean, we've we've alluded to those those controversies, but there's also in, in your in your talk at Acton, you highlighted some like very cultural elements of mm-hmm. that Presbyterianism mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. Um, yeah, that 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 go beyond. You know, the ethics on the one hand or the doctrine or the other. But, that's right. You know,
2: yeah.
1: I had a Presbyterian grandmother, you know, who mm. used to say, you know, if
2: you want to feel good about yourself, wash the dishes. Like, that's— That's exactly— Yeah. 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 That's, that's a very interesting statement. And, yeah, it, it really captures the Presbyterian ethos about, you know, uh, h- how should the church engage culture? Mm-hmm. And I think to sort of summarize it, it's this very strong sense of, of public duty— yeah, you know, and it's a uniquely Presbyterian sort of aspect of their worldview, of the Presbyterian worldview, that um, you know you have you have theology, you have do, you know, you have you know a moral a moral structure, and fundamentalists and and um, and modernists stress one or the other, but 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 both sides would say that you know that Christians have a very distinct. Responsibility to the world, a responsibility, a duty to the world. Um, of course, they would go about defining that in different ways. Yeah, but Dulles certainly has, uh, from his earliest childhood, mm-hmm. is is ingrained. This is ingrained in him. This this duty, this responsibility that you have as a Christian to the world. Yeah, and that's 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 an
1: animating part of. Of his public life, certainly, as well. Um, in the beginnings of that public life, looks a lot. Well, I mean, his whole career looks a lot like many of the of the prestigious members of his family. But he gets his start early with diplomatic work. Um,
2: he does. Uh, could you share with our with our audience some of some of those interesting? Yeah, it's very interesting. So when he's a junior in college, mm-hmm. um, and you know, he was at Princeton. In uh, 1907, he was only 19 years old, so he was young as a you know, as a junior in college. It's a little bit you know 19 is kind of young for this, but he was invited by his grandfather, who had been Secretary of State, to attend the Second Hague Conference with you know with him in 1907, and so uh, you know Secretary Foster asked his grandson to come with him as his private secretary. And he did. He went. Uh, they went to the Hague, and you know, he spent the summer and of 1907 uh, working uh, with his with his grandfather, carrying on sort of, uh, you know, uh, sort of gopher work, mm-hmm. right? Um, not just for his grandfather, but ultimately for all of the all of the delegations. Um, and his sort of his claim to fame. He, he would talk about this in later years. His his big contribution to the uh, to the Hague Peace Conference was. Um, there was no protocol about where where the different de- delegations would sit, and how they would interact with one another, and it was all very sensitive. You know, this is of course pre World War One, sort of an Edwardian society. Yeah. Protocol is very important, but there hadn't been anything set up. So he and another, um, you know, basically person his own age, um, um, established sort of so got letters of rec- letters of uh, introduction mm-hmm. that they distributed, and they sort of. They sort of got together and put together a protocol, right, Yeah. the two of them. And um, Foster said uh, years later in the 50s, he said, uh, and, and thus, you know, we prevented the world war for another seven years, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which was a joke, of course. Yeah. But, but that was something that he did. And he came home with a scrapbook full of all of these beautiful engraved imitations of soirees and socials and dances and balls and dinners and all these things that he went to. And he brought this this great scrapbook back and showed it to all his friends and uh, you know you, they're in the archive still, and it's a beautiful it's a beautiful kind of treasury of, of things that he brought back. Yeah. But, but this was very um, I mean, I'm going on and on about this, but but it's uh, it, it really is a unique experience for him. He's so young. And it's such a unique um, sort of event in early 20th century – early 20th century history and he's right there. And it sets him on this diplomatic trajectory for his life. I think it's really sort of the thing that that convinces him that he wants to be an international lawyer Mm -hmm. in his career. So –
1: when does he start serving in official capacities um, in the diplomatic, in, yeah. in, in various diplomatic capacities?
2: He starts officially in 1917. Okay, yeah. so the
1: very early. Yes. Very early, um, and he's very successful.
0: Very uh, he, successful. He gets a
1: reputation yes. Yes. Um, appreciated by 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 major figures in both parties. Mm-hmm. Um, when is the point where controversy begins? Mm. I, um, I'm thinking, particularly if you, if you look at when he when he sort of chooses a political side mm-hmm. eventually, mm-hmm. Um, when he he hitches his wagon to the Republican Party in an effort to sort of to sort of try to. Leverage the influence beyond being just a just a uh, an ordinary member, you know. Over, however, highly effective member of the mm-hmm. civil service, mm-hmm. and
2: and looks for something uh, a larger sphere of yes. influence. Yeah. Well, that's a huge question. Mm-hmm. Um, when does he really start to get it? Because the controversies, because they really do start a lot earlier than that. Okay. Um, when he was on the reparations commission way back in the Treaty of Versailles. Mm-hmm. Uh, he um, was one of the authors of the war guilt clause. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So that was controversial at the time, and of course was controversial <laughs> in Europe, mm-hmm. uh, unspeakably controversial. But, but kind of in American, in American context, what you're talking about in 1944, um, he was Tom Dewey's uh, favorite to be selected as Secretary of State, and he was advising Thomas Dewey on foreign affairs issues. Yeah. When Thomas Dewey was making his his first run for the presidency in mm-hmm. 1944. And it was really no secret among in the media that that Foster would likely be the nominee for Secretary of State if Dewey defeats uh, Franklin Roosevelt in that election. Yeah. Of course he didn't, but mm-hmm. during during the campaign um, it was during that time that his you know Foster was um, you know in 1944 um, i got to do the math for a second he would have been uh, 1888 uh, 1944 he would have been um, almost 60 so okay. he, he was approaching he was approaching 60 so he he had an entire career behind him mm-hmm. as managing partner of Sullivan and Cromwell yeah um, he had been working with the fc the federal council of churches as the chairman of an organ, of a, a commission called a commission for just and durable peace so he had a long career behind him and and he also had a business career. He was on the board of several international cartels, international nickel uh, and several others. So yeah. um, so a muckraking journalist by the name of Drew Pearson started digging into Dulles's um, business and legal connections and you know, who is this guy? Yeah. and Pearson,, uh, you know, Was suggesting that Dulles had been a Nazi sympathizer. Okay. Um, Because they were, you know, he was he was um, did a lot of had a lot of business dealings in Germany.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: He was on the board of several cartels that were um, supplying the war machine. Yeah. International Nickel, for example, uh, they provided armor plating for. Yeah.
1: For tanks. All of the raw materials necessary for armaments for yeah tanks. He was on the board
2: of he was on the board of. uh, chemical companies that developed, uh, you know, phosgene and mustard gas. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was profiting, profiting off of all of this and these business relationships in Germany. Um, and so Drew Pearson, you know, sort of exposed all these things and, and accused Dulles of being, you know, an, a Nazi sympathizer, which he had to, he had to come back and defend himself quite a bit in the 40s mm-hmm. against prominent political figures, but also average people in the pew, yeah. People were writing the Federal Council of Churches, pastors and laypersons all over the country mm-hmm. saying, "Who is this guy?" You know, uh, you know, he's he's on this commission, but do we really want to have this person as Secretary of State?" And the letters from all over the country, the, from just ordinary Americans are pretty striking.
1: Yeah. Now, as this is coming out, what when when did cuz there there are many There are many American companies that had business dealings in Germany before 1939. Yes. Um, You know, from from the perspective of the 21st century, Mm. this looks, well, as incriminating as it does in 1944. Oh, yeah, for sure. However, you know, prior to um, the outbreak of the war, there were many American companies doing business in Germany. When did he— disentangle his business concerns
2: from, from Germany? I can say this, that um, with, in regard to that question, it's not until 1935 mm-hmm. that Sullivan and Cromwell closes its Berlin office. OK. So Hitler came to power in 33, January of 33, as chancellor. Um, but Sullivan and Cromwell continues to, ma- to run their Berlin office. Yeah. Uh, while Hitler is in power, uh, much to the chagrin of the other partners, including Allen, his brother, who is also a partner of Sullivan and Cromwell. Okay. And so all of the partners by 1935, are they're in revolt. They mm-hmm. are threatening to quit, and they are threatening to start a new law firm that would compete with Sullivan and Cromwell Yeah, if, if Foster doesn't agree to close the Berlin office. Mm-hmm. So Foster was the last person... To want to close the office in Berlin. Yeah. Uh, later, when he's confronted by this in mm-hmm. 1944, he tries to cast it in terms of, "Well, I, you know, I um, saw the the danger of Hitler early on, and we closed our Berlin office, you know, um, long before the United States broke diplomatic relations relations with Germany and so forth." Which wasn't until
1: until. The declaration of war
2: by Germany against the United States, correct? Yeah, uh, yeah, and and when he's, but he, when he says that, it's like okay, that's true, but you know, <laughs> yeah, two years had gone by, mm-hmm. um, and you know, Dulles also would say, I, "I deeply deplored the rise of Hitler to power." He said this years later, twenty years after the fact. Yeah, he didn't really look like he deeply deplored it that much at the time yeah so you know it you know the things that the things are the things that he says in his defense in the in the late forties mm-hmm. um, against accusations of, of being a, a Nazi sympathizer were you know they were true yeah they, they were accurate but there was a lot behind the scenes there's a lot of um a lot of nuance you know in terms of his involvement that, yeah. he, that he doesn't really talk about you know mm-hmm. so um He's he's slow in breaking his relationships with these cartels. He's slow in closing um, the uh, the law office in Berlin. He's He defends Hitler all the way as late as 1937. Okay. Thinks he's a great leader. He's good for Germany. That's pretty late, you know? Yeah. Um, by 1938, thirty39 he no longer has anything to say in defense of Hitler. But as, as early as, uh, you know, 1937, he's still defending Hitler.
1: Now— he ends up having um, a large role in the post-war settlement, particularly in Japan. Oh, yes. Um,
2: what, is, what is his role there? That is a very fascinating part of his life. It might be the most interesting part of his whole life. Yeah. He is the chief negotiator of the Treaty of San Francisco that, that con- formally concludes the war between the Allies and, um, and Japan. So, 48 nations are signatories to it. The United States, of course, the leading delegation uh, for the allies. But, but Foster is the leading negotiator and he is uh, – he has cabinet rank that he's given by – he's nominated by uh, Truman.
1: Yeah.
2: And um, he has ambassador rank uh, as, as, this, as chief negotiator and he establishes this treaty on the basis of uh, security in the Pacific against communist um, aggression and expansionism. Mm-hmm. So he's—what he's trying to do is establish Japan as a bulwark of anti-communism. Yeah. Um, at the time, the idea was that the American frontier um, goes from the Aleutian Islands through Japan all the way down to, um, you know, Oceania, to New Zealand, to yeah. Indonesia, to Australia. That is—California is not the western frontier of the United States. Mm-hmm. The western frontier of the United States— is, is this line from the Aleutians down to New Zealand and, and Australia? Yep. Right? And so Japan is a key element mm-hmm. in that frontier. So the treaty was meant to put Japan on its feet economically yep. and politically, make it a constitutional system, even with an emperor, but yep. also that, that Japan uh, would have an alliance with the United States mm-hmm. and um, that, that Japan would be this bulwark. And that Japan would be, um, you know, sort of key to uh, s- to the security of the United States and its allies uh, in the Pacific, and it's a it's a brilliant success. Yeah. Um, you know, that, that treaty establishes, uh, the, you know, the closest relationship that we have in the Pacific during the entire Cold War and, of course, leading all the way up to today. No. It's Dulles' it's uh, imagination. It's Dulles' work of negotiation that, that um, you know, establishes that as a, a precedent between America and Japan. It's his, it's his most important. It's his most successful diplomatic, uh, you know, project of his entire life.
1: What's, what's the nature of the anti-communism that sort of animates Dolas mm. in this work and, mm. then, and then largely for the rest of his career? Yeah. And, and how is that related to his religious faith?
2: Yeah, that's such a great question. Um, we could talk about this for, for a long time, but I'll, I'll try to summarize yeah. it. Yeah. But yeah, that's fascinating. Um, so I, one of the things I make the point of in my book— is that, <clears throat> that that John Foster Dulles, at the end of World War II, from the end of World War II in forty-five to the beginning of the Cold War, as it begins to, you know, um, get underway, really in forty-six, but certainly by forty-eight,
1: mm-hmm.
2: John Foster Dulles never really stops fighting. Mm-hmm. He never goes into a mindset of, okay, we're at peace now. In fact, he says, he, he advocates to the American public um, that we can't let our guard down, right? Mm-hmm. We've defeated the Nazis, we defeated the Japanese, but now we have a new, a new threat that is emerging in the East. Mm-hmm. As early as 1946, June of 1946, he writes a, a series of essays for Time magazine called Thoughts on Soviet Foreign Policy— where he says, he urges his American audience, you cannot let your guard down. Even though, yeah, we fought this world war, we can't afford to just uh, turn inward like we did at the end of the first world war. Mm-hmm. So, so Dulles has this war fighting mindset that he never loses. He, you know, Of course, fighting, fighting in World War II, but by the time you get to you know, the late 40s, he's still now – but he just, has a new, he just has a new aggressor, a mm-hmm. new enemy in mind. And that's that's pretty uh, that's pretty interesting. One of the things you see that connection is that Dulles will use language, religious language, yeah, to cast his enemies. So during the forties, he'll say about Hitler and about Nazi Germany, he'll call it uh, demonic forces. Mm-hmm. He'll talk about um, uh, you know sort of more in moral transcendent terms, you know, like that. It's it's a it's a it's a demonic enemy we are fighting. Mm-hmm. Uses the same language implies to the Soviets in the forties, yeah. so. You know, it's not like for him, yeah, World War II, and then that stops, and then we have the Cold War. For him, there aren't these categories that are isolated one from another. Yeah. For him, we are we are at war with demonic forces. Yeah. Right? With communism, he actually writes a book in nineteen fifty called War or Peace. And in War or Peace, he does a um a detailed examination of Stalinist brand communism. Mm-hmm. And his, of course, his, his main idea, driving idea is that, that, that Soviet communism under, the, under Stalin is inherently godless and uh, uh, inherently immoral. So, mm-hmm. it, so the Soviets and the Soviet system has set itself outside of the moral law yep. and made itself hostile to the moral law. And of course, atheistic. And this is the basis for um, the enmity between the United States, which he calls a Christian nation, he's not shy about this at all, yeah, uh, and the Western powers as Christian nations mm-hmm. who are the antithesis of all this, right? Yep. And um, the, the, a confrontation with the Soviets, he says, is inevitable, but it doesn't have to be a shooting war, it's a moral conflict, right? Mm-hmm. So, He'll say that it is moral weapons, it is spiritual weapons that we will – that will make the difference in this cosmic battle between the forces of, of godless communism and the forces of American democracy. And our victory is assured because moral forces are invincible
1: what what causes this shift cuz you you see this language and it, which is very strange language mm. for mm. a lot of contemporary oh, yeah. american sure. christians sure. To, 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 i the idea yeah. of uniting yeah. the christian message with civilizational struggle yeah. with uh, with 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 violence or even merely violent warlike like language yeah. but th- but this is something that you know uh, has a long history in particularly liberal Protestantism in the United States. This is the case that was made for World War one. was cast. there's a a wonderful Unitarian church here in Grand Rapids, called Fountain Street Church that's just down the street from the Acting Institute. It's a uh-huh. beautiful Romanesque building. Uh-huh. And they have this was where my my high school commencement was actually okay. in this building. And they have this what they call the Hall of Heroes. And it's this beautiful, you know, sort of four arches mm. room with the names of everybody. I think it's everyone in Kent County mm. that died in the First World War. Okay, in yeah. the struggle for civilization. For civilization. Sure. And this is this is a Unitarian church. I don't. I think they were, they were, they were still. I think technically a Baptist church, but a Mainline Baptist church yep. at that point. There. Yep. Yep. But. Um, this is this is not unusual no at all in this period in fact the the one thing that's interesting as you are recounting is is it's interesting that Dulles casts it as a moral struggle in particular and, yes. and, and that there, and that there's that moral struggle is is distinct from the struggle that occurs on the battlefield oh, yes. which a lot of times was equivocated and yes. earlier
2: yeah.
1: uh, in earlier times what accounts for that for that Distinction in Dulles' thinking.
2: Well, I do think it's it's his um, Presbyterian upbringing, mm-hmm. particularly in a liberal uh, a liberal church, First yeah. Pres of Watertown, and the preaching of his father and so forth. That emphasis on on ethics, mm-hmm. the emphasis on the invincibility of of God's moral law, mm-hmm. is he he drinks deeply deeply from that. Um, These are things that are, you know, go way back. I mean, when he was a kid, you know, he'd go to church with his father and his family. He'd listen to three sermons every single Sunday. He was at church all the time uh, whenever the doors were open. But then also on Sundays, you know, the family um, would—after church, they would come home. This is every—this is just a ritual. They'd have a a very beautiful Sunday dinner. The whole family gathered together. They'd always have homemade ice cream. I mean, it was just like—it was a wonderful tradition that they have— but they would also um, – uh, Reverend Dulles would have all the children say, what notes did you take during the sermon? Let me hear what mm-hmm. you're – you know, how you summarized the sermon. They'd lay out their notes. Then they would go to the piano. They'd go to the parlor, you know, um, and Edith uh, Dulles, Mrs. Dulles would play the piano. They would sing hymns all day. They would read scripture all day. This was on Sunday, and it was every single Sunday of his entire life. So these things are deeply, deeply ingrained in him. Yeah, um, And – uh, you know, also one other thing I'll say about the uh, Presbyterian controversy, the um, fundamentalist modernist country, is a very interesting correspondence that he has with his dad while yeah. he is serving as legal counsel. So his dad, of course, is a elder theologian, you know, of the liberal persuasion at Auburn, yeah. um, signatory to the Auburn uh, Affirmation, and so forth. And his father is sort of coaching him along, mm-hmm. saying, you know, here's here's what you need to say when you hear this. And here's the kind of the, the, the mindset of the fundamentalist, and here's why it's wrong. And he's sort of coaching his son. And one of the things that, that they talk about a lot is that, you know, the importance of moral, of moralism. It's very moralistic, their point of view, and you, you see it in that correspondence as well. So this commitment to a moralism, you know, is is so deep and so strong. You add that to the Presbyterian uh mindset of of the duty Christians owe to the world and sort of the mission that the Christian that Christians have in the world uh, to Christianize the world and when they when they say that they really mean in a moral sense
1: it's civilizational yes. it's not confessional yeah 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 exactly yeah now what was Dulles's own family life with his wife his children um, yeah, did that? Did that heritage get passed down?
2: Yeah, in his own in his own family experience, N- not nearly as strongly. Okay, part, partly because he's a, lay, a layman. Yeah, but but in the twenties, um, he was an elder mm-hmm. of the um, uh, Park Avenue uh, Presbyterian Church that later merged with Brick Church. Um, but he did give up the eldership because he um, he bought a country home. At Cold Spring Harbor on Long Island, and um, you know they were they didn't go to church Uh, during the twenties and thirties. They didn't go to church hardly at all, yeah. Um, Because uh, you know he he enjoyed you know they enjoyed a country lifestyle out of the city. Um, They did they did go a lot. And Avery talks about you know his childhood growing to going to church. You know his father would dress up in a you know in a in formal. You know attire, tails. Uh, he would wear a, a top hat and carry a cane to church, and you know he tried to sort of um, you know repeat some of those traditions. They'd always have a, a, a large Sunday dinner. They'd sing hymns and read read Bible verses and things. But he it wasn't he what well, didn't sustain it. You know yeah uh, during Avery's childhood that those those it was easy to sort of let those go uh, instead play tennis all day at Cold Spring Harbor. Okay, you know so. When Avery was a boy, and when John was a boy, and when Lilius was a little girl, they they went to church in the first part of their, of their young lives, but but pretty soon they didn't go at all. Yeah. Now Lilius d- does become an ordained Presbyterian minister. Okay, I did not know mm-hmm. this. She died in 1987. Yeah. And um, so she was ordained, and then also. Um, of course, Avery um, became a, a Catholic theologian. Yes. But he came. He became a Catholic theologian in spite of... Um, that is an interesting story. Yes. Um, we're talking about Cardinal
1: Avery Dulles, yes. who for our Roman Catholic listeners might be more familiar to them yes. than his father. Yes. How did Avery come to that decision? Yeah. And then the second is, is sort of like, how did his father take that as yeah. somebody who had a strong religious heritage? Yeah but yeah. wasn't particularly
2: practicing uh, during um, Avery's childhood. That is such a really interesting question. Um, I'll, I'll make this quick, but it's so fascinating. I can't, I can't resist to bring it up. So yeah. so Alan Macy Dulles, Reverend Dulles, wrote a book in 1907 called The True Church, great big, three, over 300 pages. It's like it's, it's his life's work. And in The True Church, one of the main points of it is that the, what he says, the evangelical churches— um, those that came out of the Protestant information by, by, by their nature are free. They're autonomous. Their congregations are autonomous. They don't have this strong hierarchy. Um, the Roman Catholic tradition is top down, hierarchical and tyrannical. Yeah. <laughs> so the, the true church are the, is the Evangelic churches, mm-hmm. you know, and the false church is the Roman Catholic church. Yeah. He writes this in 1907, uh, you fast forward to 1941 which is when Avery converts. Avery did not really have a strong religious upbringing because of what I just said they didn't go to church no. much. When he went to Harvard, as a student in Harvard, he pretty much considered himself to be a irreligious person. Yeah. He was kind of a party guy and and so forth, but he was mentored by a Catholic theologian his sophomore year who was only there for a, a short Fellowship, and then he was gone. His junior year, um, he experienced his uh, his first really deep um, theological reflections. He says that he um, he prayed the Lord's prayer. You know, he prayed the Our Father for the first time since he was a little boy when his mother would lead him at his bedside. He started to seek seek God in his junior year, and um, he started visiting Presbyterian churches. His the. Yeah. Reconnect. Of, yeah, this is, yeah. But he was also reading the Bible. He was reading uh, Augustine. He was reading the Church Fathers very deeply. And he said that he didn't recognize the God that was being preached in the Presbyterian traditions. Mm-hmm. He, he was reacting really against the liberalism. Yeah. Um, so he went to the Catholic Church in uh, Cambridge and was um, – he, he was you know after discussing conversion with the with the priest he he converted. His his parents were very disturbed by this. Yeah, uh, they didn't know what to, how to make sense of this because they were accustomed. Well, certainly Foster was accustomed to thinking of of Catholicism and Protestantism in those very st- uh, different categories that his father had t- taught him. Mm-hmm. Roman Catholicism is tyrannical. Yeah, and hierarchical, un-American. Mm-hmm. For his son. To convert to that? What is going on? He actually writes a letter to his son to disown him. But he is persuaded by his best friend, Arthur Dean, not to send the letter. So he doesn't send it. Uh, and ultimately, they become I – mean, they were always close. Mm-hmm. There is an a interlude of time where they're not that close yeah. during this time. But their relationship is reestablished and they become close again uh, in the late 40s and in the 50s. And um, and I think that the relationship was really enhanced, yeah, as a result of his conversion. But but it was hard for them. It was particularly hard for Janet, yeah, his mother, uh, Avery's mother, and and with Foster, you know, he he was ready to disown him. Yeah, yeah, it's crazy, isn't it?
1: Yeah, Cardinal Cardinal Dulles is is an amazing figure in his own right. Um, he delivered a lecture at the Acton Institute called uh, "Truth Is the Ground of Freedom," mm, which is an excellent beautiful. meditation yeah. um, on a lot of themes in the writings of uh, Pope John Paul II.
2: Yeah,
1: um, and I'm wondering because in that Dulles is obvious, uh, you know, Cardinal Dulles is obviously very attracted to the relationship between truth. And freedom. Yes, and I'm wondering if you know there. Th- part of that, part of that is a is a is a is a theological position. Very but, much so. But yeah. part of it is also an embracing of this family heritage. Yes. That. Uh, yes. Is is delightful to find out about.
2: Yeah. So yeah, with Avery, you know, <clears throat> Avery actually writes an essay. Responding and, and reacting to the 1907 book his grandfather wrote. Oh, this um, is that. Oh man. Uh, he he says uh, he calls it uh, an exercise in theological nepotism. <laughs> 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 and uh, you know he really critiques his grandfather yeah. for doing away with doing away with dogmatics. He's like, look, you know, the mm-hmm. tradition, the the theology, the dogma. These things are what make Christians who who they are. And that that aren't
1: antithetical to notions of human freedom that's exactly right uh, personally politically or spiritually and and Dulles is uh, Dulles makes a powerful powerful case yeah. for that synthesis yeah um, the, the one question I kind of want to end on is um, this is obviously a fascinating figure whose life touches so many formative people mm-hmm. and events yes. in yes in our history, what what would you like readers um, when the book comes out? What would you like them to take away from it? Mm. And then this is this is might be a different answer, but why why did you write it? Mm. Is there anything that you, in the writing of it, got out of it that yeah, yeah um, definitely
2: that was its own reward for you. Yeah, definitely. So when I wrote the chapter in the exceptionalism book, I was pretty hard on him. Um, But, you know, I didn't know very much about him. I did research, but uh, research for a chapter. Yeah. And uh, and uh, surrounding a a particular uh, topic, America's mission to the world is what I wrote about. But, you know, there's no substitute for spending um, two years in the archives and just really getting to know the man on, on a human level. So I wrote this book. It's a religious biography. Mm-hmm. So it focuses on his, you know, his religious beliefs and his family's religious heritage. Um, but the book is really um, in a stress on his humanity. Dulles is um, characterized. He was characterized during his lifetime. He was characterized after his death. Continues to be characterized as something of a, uh, you know, a, a staid, um, boring uh, Presbyterianish Puritanical pasty white guy, you know, who believed in American exceptionalism, America right or wrong and all that. And there's a lot of truth to that. And in fact, what I critiqued him on in my previous book was a lot of that. Yeah. But I found when I, when I studied his life um, in, its, in its totality, when I studied his family, his parents, his grandparents, um, you know, it brings it into perspective. This is a, a, a dynamic person. With many paradoxes, many contradictions, many ironies, and he bracketed off his public life from his private life. Um, people didn't really know the real, the, the private Dallas, you know, except his closest friends and his wife and his children. So, so it, it, simple explanations of the man mm-hmm. do nothing for us in understanding the man, and they do nothing for us to understand his times. Yeah. So if we if we're going to really think historically about About 1888 to 1959 in the world, if we're going to think historically about a person's life who makes a contribution to that world and is also affected by that world, we have to tell the truth uh, based on as much information as we have access to. Well, thank
1: you so much for joining us today. Yeah, it's been Uh, great fun. Thanks so much for having me. We look forward to
2: the book. Thank you. Thank you very much.
0: As always, thank you so much for listening today. Our podcast team loves putting this show together for you every week, and it's so encouraging to hear back from our listeners. Feedback is super important to me because it lets me know what you'd like to hear more of, including the kinds of topics you're interested in most, and also how I can improve this show to make sure you're getting the most out of it. You can reach our team at actinline at actin.org, or you can call our office at 616. 616- Four five four three zero eight zero. and if you like our show you know what to do leave us those ratings and reviews on the Apple Podcast app and subscribe Act in Line is on YouTube, Google Play, Stitcher or wherever you listen